The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Hello, everyone. So it is 9.30, and what I'll do is I'll start us all out with, uh, we'll just all take a couple of breaths together, and uh, then we'll begin. So I'm going to ring the bell to center us all. happy to be with you all and welcome everyone. So we take a couple of breaths together, sensing into the energy of the group here on Zoom. Sensing into the energy in your own body. And seeing if there's any way of, on the exhale, relaxing into the body a little bit. Allowing for the mind and the body to be here. And as I ring the bell, allowing your eyes to open whenever you're ready. Okay, hello, hello. Again, welcome everyone. It's so wonderful to see these faces here. Really enjoy our gatherings each month. And we're going to start out with bringing some energy into class by doing breakout groups. And as promised from the handout that we sent out last month after our class, there was some practices that you had that we invited you to take a look at. And if you are here for the first time or you didn't somehow get to the, the worksheet and, and the homework, no worries because it's very easy to just pick right up, which is to say that the topic is, uh, what did we notice about the pleasant and the unpleasant 
in our daily life. And we have had lots of wonderful material on the pleasant and unpleasant. No shortage of material right now in the world. So um, the question that I'm going to have you all talk about is very open and broad, which is what did you learn this past month when you were doing some of the practices of recognizing when the unpleasant arose, recognizing when unpleasant was no longer there, and recognizing when the pleasant arose. So what did you discover over the past month, and uh, what did you learn? So very broad. And we're going to have Chris do the breakouts. Is there any question about that before we start? Okay, well, enjoy your groups, and we'll see you when you come back. There we are. Yeah. Wonderful. That's about, I think that's about everybody. I think that's about it, yeah. Okay, so I am... Um, Hoping that those group conversations were pleasant. And um, we do have time for a couple of comments from anyone who wishes to share. We'd love to hear sort of the highlights or lowlights or whatever you'd like to talk about that um, came up in your groups. And there's a raised hand. And I apologize, I can't pronounce your name. That's right. So, uh, Tatiana. Thank you. <laughs> Nobody can. Tatiana. Nobody who's Russian can. So, uh, in terms of key learning, that was very, very interesting. The main thing that I derive it is that the reason why I dislike unpleasant feelings is because how they feel in my body. Like, I don't dislike being criticized. What do I care? I don't dislike that something external to me is happening. I dislike how I react when this is happening to me, and I feel that gives me so much control because, like, humor me. I give birth to three children without painkillers. I'm sure I can tolerate this discomfort. That's <laughs> interesting. Thank you. Thank you so much. I loved that. It's very true. It feels so unpleasant in the body. Thank you. Who else would like to share something? Megan has her hand raised. Okay. Just unmute yourself. I actually just wanted to mention that there was a person in our group that didn't get a chance to speak. She was on the phone. It was phone number uh, 915-433-4806. Oh, sorry, sorry. Somebody joined late with a phone number, and I, yeah, I don't know. But if, if she would, would she might want to. Yeah, if you would like to say anything, go ahead. If you're here. Yep. Well, okay. Why don't we go on? Thank you. Right. And if you don't, if you're not sure or don't remember how to raise your hand electronically, just uh, unmute and raise your hand physically. 
Yes, Wendy. Hi. Um, yeah, so in our group share, I think um, two things that I wanted to share. One is um, that how pleasure and pain can all be happening out of the same situation. It's, it's, it, it's not necessarily all just the pleasure. and it, it, Depending on the circumstance, it can be kind of unraveling in the same moment. It's sort of like where is the mind kind of uh, pulling toward and then the second thing was that um, through our sharing, I just kind of felt like with our practice, our practice really brings in this container or this, it's almost like, you know, to sit with whether it's pleasure and the second arrow uh, grasping or the pain and other things that come. But it, it really provides this confident container for us to meet um, both of those things. So wanted to share that beautiful just beautiful that container absolutely um in our in our the group uh, container yes sorry yeah so in our group somebody shared like you know when uh when pleasant and unpleasant arises uh she likes to contemplate on what's arising like what's behind that like why is she thinking that this is pleasant and unpleasant and then oftentimes it leads to her own um expectations and aspirations and then um she likes to differentiate between those and um and another person shared like you know instead of thinking of it is his pain and his uh, pleasant uh, hap arising he tries to contemplate and how it's like that's how it is he tries to take himself out of the situation thank you thank you very much yeah that reminder of common humanity we all we all experience this and the reminder of expectations just being aware of that We have time for one more. Ram has his hand up. Yes, Ram. Yeah, quickly. So there was a good month reading and paying attention to the pain and pleasure. And one thing that really worked for me was Gil's talk uh, end of the month, where he brought out a notion of activism without opposition. The opposing thing brings resistance in us. That resistance causes pain. <laughs> right? That's, in a sense, our own doing. So he was. I, I, it resonated very well with me about the, not just the notion of a fatalistic acceptance, but pay attention to why I am resisting while it's causing me pain. If I let it go through completely, I can still act skillfully. Just because I let it accept doesn't mean I'm agreeing with it, right? There's a, there is a, a beautiful subtlety that came to fruition. I was uh, commenting on that about uh, going uh, Gandhian philosophy back in India when his notion was to secure independence for India in a nonviolent way, but without hating the British or disliking the British. <laughs> Most people got the first part but it was hard to develop the second part. And that's where uh, this practice has been very helpful. Love that. 
Thank you so much for bringing that in. We'll, we'll, I'm going to be talking a little bit more about that um, at the end of the, the day today. So thank you very much. Yeah. All right. I think we will move on to a guided meditation from David. So am I unmuted? Yes, you are. Okay, great. Well, just as an introduction, I want to talk a little bit about dreams. So when we go to sleep at night, we dream. Um, highly charged dreams with hope and fear of successes and failures and gains and losses are in our dreams. Like some common dreams are losing something valuable to you, like your car or your home, or gaining, gaining money, or unable to find your way someplace. You know your own dreams, you know the hopes and fears and that are very active in dreams. And then, and then what happens? We wake up. We wake up and the dreams are gone. And then we start to dream again. <laughs> Charged with hope and fear about gains and losses and successes and failures and the rest of the world he wins. So much of the time we live in a movie. We live in our own dream. Tara Brock calls it the trance of the ego, the ego trance. Somebody asked Suzuki Roshi, does he ever go to the movies? And he says, I don't need to. I have lots of interviews with my students. So if we recognize our dream, and if we don't identify it, identify with it, we can break the trance. We can recognize it, but not be swept away by it. There's a thin veil between us and reality, which can be easily brushed away at any moment. We can all do this. The nature of the mind is <clears throat> naturally knowing. Without this awareness, without this knowingness, we would be dead. So all we have to do is simply go back to who we really are, release the dreams, and stop identifying with the dream. The great Thai forest master Ajahn Chah came to exactly this. He said, the mind is that which knows. And the whole point is to dwell with that which knows. That's all. It's so easy. It's so simple. Everyone can do it. It's who we are. If we dwell in reality, if we live with awareness, we don't suffer. 
at least maybe 98% of our problems are solved just by doing that. But we don't do it. We get carried away by our dreams. It's interesting that we don't do it. Reality is everywhere. It's all pervasive. All we need to do is remove the thin veil that's our dream. When you're in the presence of a great master, I don't know if any of you have that experience, but suddenly life becomes so simple. It was my experience with Suzuki Roshi and with many people that I've talked with that when you were in the presence of Suzuki Roshi, there was such an awareness, such a palpable awareness there that life suddenly became very simple. Suddenly there was just nothing to worry about. This awakening is a simple experience not full of rainbows and trumpets with Suzuki Roshi or with our own awareness. He didn't give me something. I already have it. You already have it. This simple, naked awareness. It's so simple, so close, and we can miss it so easily. We expect that knowing reality is something big, something fantastic, some amazing experience, but reality is so plain, so bare. We can't imagine just this, just this is it. It's right here, but we don't recognize it. Every time we hear a sound, every time we see It's because of awareness. But we're so captivated by our senses and our thoughts and our memories and our hopes and our dreams that we don't recognize the awareness that's behind all of it, the knowing of it. We can't make ourselves aware. We are aware. But to strengthen awareness, we can develop qualities the qualities of awareness, like effortlessness, naturalness, presence. By developing these qualities, a natural, awake presence emerges. And we can get to know what that feels like. So let's try this. So if you can um, take a lightly straight posture, comfortable. Close your eyes. Maybe if you'd like to take a few calm Deep breaths, breathing in all of the tension in your body, the agitation, the worries, the concerns, filling up your heart and body. 
and letting it all go. A few big calming breaths. And on the exhale, let go and relax. Doesn't matter if there's some tension still in your body. So see if you can connect with a quality of effortless presence. You can't make this happen. All we can do right now is to let go and allow this feeling of relaxation, ease, and effortless presence to emerge all on its own. Allow a deep relaxation and ease to come into your heart and your mind. Settle in, completely let go and relax. See if you can tap into this quality of deep ease. Now let go of any impulse you might have to change, improve, or control your experience in any way. Simply be present. You might even imagine you're sitting here without any intention. One of the challenging things that can happen if you really let go and drop into this state of effortless presence is that you might feel like your mind is getting more distracted, like you're going backwards, but it's not. Just see if you can allow whatever is happening in your body, your mind, your feelings, whatever is around you, to happen. If your mind gets distracted from time to time, that's fine. Just allow whatever is happening to be present. Every thought, every feeling, every perception we are having is fundamentally pure. Pause from time to time and let this perspective infuse your meditation. If your mind starts to drift into a distraction, don't worry about it. 
It'll come back on its own. You don't need to make that happen. There's nothing to do here. Simply allow the experience of non-distraction or presence to happen on its own. Most of, our, most of us are so, uh, so used to forcing our experience or to hold on to something that's going on. All you have to do is allow this quality of presence to happen all on its own. And when it does, notice that. Notice what it feels like to be totally present. Take this in, what it feels like to be totally undistracted. to be totally present now. Now notice this quality of effortlessness. Continue to simply be. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to create a new, improved state of mind. Simply rest in a state of effortless, open presence, open awareness. As you rest here in this state of effortlessness, without trying to meditate in any intentional way, your attention will drift from object to object. Thoughts may come and go through your mind. Just let all of that happen. It's all good. Allow whatever happens to happen naturally. There's no experience you could ever have that would disrupt the pure, radiant clarity of awareness. So trust that that radiant clarity is here right with you now, even if you don't see it clearly. It's always here with you. You don't need to do anything. Just let go. Let be. And let this quality of effortless awareness emerge on its own without any effort to make it happen. 
As you rest in open awareness, allow yourself to be completely natural. Non-contriving, non-fabrication. Allow whatever is to happen, happen. It's all unfolding in awareness anyway. So there's no way to do this wrong. Whatever happens is perfectly pure. It's all a manifestation, a pure awareness. When we're letting go of the impulse to control the mind, you may feel that you're getting more distracted, but don't worry about that. It's a completely natural part of our experience. This is being with experience unconditionally. You might feel old habits creeping into your meditation. You might feel the impulse to concentrate or to shield yourself from some experience. That's totally natural. That's the residue of all the old meditation habits that you have. Let them come and go. They're fine. We don't need to give in to them. But we don't need to block them either. We can treat them just like clouds passing through the sky. For the final few minutes of this meditation, do not meditate. Don't even try to meditate. Don't try to be natural. Just sit. There's nothing to do Nowhere to go. Just this one moment. For this last minute of the meditation, If there's a shred, any shred of effort to control left, 
drop it. Be here. Just sit in open, effortless awareness. Okay, you can open your eyes whenever you're ready. So these practices can be very powerful in meditation, but they can be just as powerful in daily life. So you can think about what you're going to do today, some specific activities. You might want to set a clear intention to bring these qualities of effortlessness, presence, and naturalness to some parts of your daily routine. See how that goes. Okay, thank you. Okay, thank you, David. So, this week's pair of wins is usually called gain and loss. So, we can also, there are a lot of other pairs that kind of fit into this category winning and losing, success and failure. Good luck, bad luck, all the ways that we divide the world into the way I wanted it, the way I didn't want it, and interpret it with these kinds of pairs and think that we've got something or that we've lost something. So these pairs are an especially clear example of how our minds try to impose conceptual categories on what's really unknowable, unpredictable, and ungraspable. In David's meditation, he kept saying, just come back to awareness, let these thoughts arise, and they do arise. But when we grab onto them and get on that train and take that ride, that's when we get into the suffering around these pairs. So probably lots of you know this famous Chinese parable, but it's so apt, I just wanted to bring it to mind one more time. A farmer and his son had a beloved horse, and one day it ran away. And all the neighbors said, oh, what terrible luck. And the wise farmer said, maybe so, maybe not. Then the horse came back a few days later, bringing a whole herd of wild horses with him. The neighbors all said, great, good luck, great, what a gain. And the farmer said, maybe, maybe not. Then later that week, this farmer's horse was training one of these, farmer's son was training one of these new horses and fell off and broke his leg. 
And the neighbor said, oh, how terrible. Oh, what a loss. And the farmer said, maybe, maybe not. So then the recruiters for the army came through the next week and they took all the men in the town off to the war, except the son who had the broken leg. So the neighbor said, oh, what good luck, what good luck. So the farmer said, maybe, maybe so, maybe not, we'll see. So that's the end of the story, but it could go on and on. So conceiving of our experience in terms of gain and loss and success and failure, it implies that we can predict accurately what's truly good for our long-term benefit, that we can see the future in terms of events in the world that are good for us. Not only that, but it also relies on ideas like having and owning and keeping, and this is mine. And the way that we stake our sense of well-being on being able to keep and control a certain little blip in the flow, a great, great flow of the web of conditions of everything. David was talking about movies. So it's like we want to freeze the frame of the movie right there and keep it and put that still picture in the bank and have it be the way things are forevermore. So Dharma practice, though, is not about refusing the beneficial. It's not about taking a grim and resigned attitude toward life where all good things don't count. That's just clinging to the negative, and it's another form of a refusal to simply recognize what is moment to moment. In the Jataka Tales, there's a line that says that the miser is seen as one who brings cheer to neither himself nor others with his wealth, but just guards his wealth saying, mine, mine, like the character in uh, Lord of the Rings. So the suttas actually have quite a realistic look at daily life, at lay life. The Buddha recognized that hunger and extreme material deprivation are not healthy. They're not, they're suffering. They're not conducive to being able to practice in life. So there's a sutta actually on the appropriate uses of wealth. Some of those are bringing happiness to oneself, one's family, one's friends, one's employees, giving offerings to others, giving gifts to renunciates. So it's a question of how you use the good fortune that might or might not come to you and how you're able to be with the so-called bad fortune that comes to you from time to time. And of course, mainly the Buddha is teaching that all that is accumulated will be dispersed. All that arises will pass. I've been through, as I'm sure many of you have been, giving away all of my parents' possessions as they either died or moved into a nursing home for their last few years. All that accumulation is dispersed. Here's a poem by Jane Kenyon called Otherwise. I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birch wood. All morning I did the work I love. At noon I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and planned another day just like this day. But one day I know it will be otherwise. 
And of course, it was otherwise for her. She died of cancer a few years after writing this poem. And it will be otherwise for all of us. So does this understanding, does it mean that we always need to keep thinking of death with each bite of a tasty peach? You know, does it, is, that what this, is that what you would take away from this poem? I don't think so. But at what point, if we really learn to watch our minds, at what point does enjoyment of a simple gain turn to clinging, to expecting too much of it, to building a future that's counting on it? You know, so there's a moment when you think, aha, now I've got it, and this is it, and I can, now I'm set. And something in the back of your mind, the more you practice, says, well, maybe, maybe, maybe not. Maybe so, maybe not. It's not, it's not the sand to build your castle on, you know. So um, what do we learn when we do very carefully watch the mind? It seems that the very act of clinging seems to spring from and imply a kind of subconscious echo that it's not always so, you know. It's what makes us cling, this unconscious knowing that if we don't cling, it's going to go away. And yet exerting that effort toward the impossible task of hanging on is stressful, and that's what we start to learn. There's a story in the suttas about um, monks seeing a fellow monk who used to be a very wealthy ruler, and he was sitting under the tree and he was exclaiming, what bliss, what bliss. And the monks thought, oh, he must be thinking of, he must be dreaming again and remembering the days when he had all that wealth and all that, all those uh, servants and all that. So finally they went and asked him and he said, no, before when I was a householder, I had guards posted within and without the royal apartments, within and without the city, within and without the countryside. But even though I was thus guarded and thus protected, I dwelled in fear, agitated, distrustful, and afraid. But now, going alone to the wilderness, to the root of a tree, I dwell without fear, unagitated, confident, and unafraid, with my mind like a wild deer. This is the compelling reason I have in mind that I repeatedly exclaim, what bliss, what bliss. So another thing about gain, you know, if you have it, then you have to protect it, ensure it, take care of it, maintain it. You know, I'm getting to the point, I've accumulated a lot of stuff in my house, and I'm getting to the point where it's feeling like a burden. You know, I'm wanting to simplify, start, start the deaccumulating process early. So there is good fortune. There are, there are gains. The Buddha talks about being born human is a great good fortune because it provides an ideal mix of all these wins and the potential to wake up. So having the conditions to hear the Dharma, which we all do, we have the conditions to hear the Dharma and the life circumstances to be able to find a community like this and learn to practice it's a great good fortune. It's a gain, if you will, that we can make wise use of. Here's a little poem by one of my favorite people, Nanao Sakaki. He's, uh, he, was, he saw war firsthand on the Japanese side of World War II. He saw a lot of destruction and, and, and war. 
And then he dedicated the rest of his life to peace and to walking and living in the wilderness and living off gathered food and writing poet, writing poems, became a, a wandering kind of sage activist. He wrote this poem. If you have time to chatter, read books. If you have time to read, walk into mountain, desert, and ocean. If you have time to walk, sing songs and dance. If you have time to dance, Sit quietly, you happy, lucky idiot. So what are we doing with this time that we have? You know, how are we using this great good fortune that we all have? So what are some wholesome, there are wholesome gains. We talked last month about wholesome, the worldly pleasures and how they can not be so wholesome. And the internal sometimes called unworldly spiritual inner pleasures of developing meditative skills, and loving kindness and compassion. So there are internal gains, the skills of meditation, how to stay closer as David was teaching, how to stay closer to simple awareness, how to recognize and get less caught up in reactivity. You know, what really works for you as you learn and practice what helps to settle and what helps to settle and collect the mind and the body. These are all, these are all unworldly gains that are well worth gaining. But we can also look at gaining ideas in our practice. And this was also a theme of David's, David's uh, guidance there. Looking at how many times have we thought, now I've got it. You know, this, well, that was a good sit. This is a bad sit. Now I've got it. Well, I lost it. I had it yesterday and now I've lost it. Or I'll never get this. So we can always just keep turning back to the now, recognizing these ideas in our meditation that are about gaining and having and being something that's going to stay. Because that's really not, that's really not this resting in awareness of what is arising in every moment, something is happening, and you just keep coming back to recognizing what that is. And it's neither a gain nor a loss. It's simply what is. And so we're always coming back to the now, towards this recognition and non-clinging, and a deep trusting that insight is in that very act and is arising out of that act. And there's nothing wrong with appreciation and gratitude for the conditions that we have, for the good fortune of having the conditions that we have. The Dhammapada says that contentment is the greatest wealth. So I want to end with a poem that feels maybe to me especially relevant in this this crazy season of hanging on to the newspapers, you know, to see who's winning and who's losing. Maybe some of you are indulging in a little bit of that. No matter what happens with the upcoming event, can we recall with Jane Kenyon that someday it will be otherwise? Winning, losing, who knows? Maybe, who knows what's best for the whole future of everything. Someday it will be otherwise and otherwise again after that as it's gone back and forth and back and forth throughout history. So can we keep coming into the present and use our very brief time here wisely, keeping this perspective of, of don't know mind, the perspective of impermanence, the potential for non-clinging in the middle of whatever happens.
So here's a, I'll let Thich Nhat Hanh have the last word. He has a poem, The Good News. The good news they do not print. The good news we do print. We have a special edition every moment and we need you to read it. The good news is that you are alive, that the linden tree is still there, standing firm in the harsh winter. The good news is that you have wonderful eyes to touch the blue sky. The good news is that your child is there before you and your arms are available, hugging as possible. They only print what is wrong. Look at each of our special editions. We always offer the things that are not wrong. We want you to benefit from them and help protect them. The dandelion is there by the sidewalk, smiling its wondrous smile, singing the song of eternity. Listen, you have ears that can hear it. Bow your head, listen to it. Leave behind the world of sorrow, of preoccupation, and get free. The latest good news is that you can do it. Freedom. Game worth gaining. So... Those are some thoughts on what is a wholesome relationship with the idea of gain in the gain and loss duet. Gain happens. I mean, things that seem fortunate happen. Things that seem unfortunate happen. What do we make of it? What do we do? How do we stay in balance with the wheel of fortune keeps turning and turning? So I'd like us to have another breakout group now. And I'll tell you the question now, and then I'll spend a minute. You can think about it while I spend a minute setting up the groups. So the question is, can you think of a time when you learned something valuable or you managed to have a wise relationship to a situation of gain? What is a wise relationship to a situation of gain for you? If you can think of an example, that would be great. If you can just think of your view on what's a realized wise relationship to gain, something you've learned from apparent gain or real gain or inner gain, or gain that came and went, anything like that. Okay, so I'll set up some groups here. Okay. I think that's everybody. So we would love to hear some of what came up. Comments, questions on anything so far today, especially this most recent breakout. Okay, so Mia. Um, thank you so much. Um, so one of the things I was observing was that um, in my family, um, the way I grew up, gains were actually not celebrated. And I don't think it was because of any Buddhistic realizations or teachings or anything, just 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 kind of focus on the negative kind of thing. You know? oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like uh, I, I feel like some things may be celebrated um, when you have a moment of gain, you can feel pleasure and celebrate, but you don't have to be attached. I know it sort of seems like a distant ideal, but uh, I feel like um, maybe 
my family took the wrong lesson from it or something. You know? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it's hard to find our balance in this world where everything keeps changing, you know, and you don't want to you don't want to grasp onto it and rely on it, but then you don't you don't need to get go over to the to the negative either. Yeah. Anybody else want to share anything that came up for you? You can just speak if you don't want to do the blue hand thing. I, I just wanted to say I really enjoyed the question um, and it brought up actually a lot of guilt that why wouldn't I think of being wise with all my gains. So like quite the opposite of what David was suggesting, but I, I really enjoyed the question. Anybody else? Anything about any of this, this whole subject? Any questions or comments on working maybe just with... A, maybe just a comment? Yeah, Joseph. Um, I guess when I considered the worldly winds, I never really con- considered, I never contemplated that um, internal, the internal um, well-being that we learn to cultivate in the practice can actually be considered as a gain. And when I realized that all of a sudden I became very fearful of losing it, you know, mm. <laughs> of losing that, you know, yeah. um, you yeah. know, um, I had a very emotional moment about considering. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. The fragility, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this, yeah, this this goes very deep. It, even, you know, gains like, you know, especially things like concentration and so forth, those are more, those get to be things you don't necessarily get to keep through. You know, the ability to get into any particular state is certainly not what's pointed to as what, what's lasting in, in this kind of freedom. And a kind of... Um clinging yeah um, kind of clinging not, to it. not really wanting to share i don't yeah particularly do i i, I don't feel like i have like so much of it that i'm actually going to share it you know uh-huh. <laughs> you know like to be with other people and actually share it you know actually have it for others i, I don't uh-huh. know you know <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well we get to have it we get to you know we get to feed ourselves it's not you know practice is Yes, of course. All the the many stories about not jumping into the quicksand to save somebody, you know, you you need to be on firm ground in order to be able to pull people out of the quicksand. Saying no to invitations. Yeah, saying no to invitations. Yeah, that you can look at. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's all just, you know, how you hold it. Clinging, or is there clinging, or is there not clinging? Thank you. Yeah, thank you. 
I appreciate a couple of stories I've heard about longtime practitioners who got Alzheimer's, like Mahagosananda, the famous, famous Cambodian uh, Buddhist leader, wound up with Alzheimer's. And But somehow his essential, the transformation of his goodness was still there. You know, he would come into the room and he would bow radiantly, having no idea who you were or, you know, what was happening. But it, it was a encouraging story to me that his his heart was... His heart was in the good place that he'd got it to. So who knows? Kate, you had a, Kate or Rob, you had something? Uh, yes. Can you hear me? Yeah. Good. Well, my particular brand of loss sometimes has been caused by my own, by myself, by my own procrastination. Um, And then that even winds up winding up in, as David was talking about dreams. I even had a, a, having a nightmare about things that I didn't actually do, but I'm getting in trouble or didn't actually not do, but I'm in the dream. I'm getting in trouble for not (laughs) um, having done some, you know, not having done something that I was supposed to do in a job. So, yeah, so when the loss is caused by yourself, that's that's a hard one. Well, it comes back to that self question. I mean, the loss was caused by the conditions of your life up to that point. That's one way to look at it. Mm-hmm. You know, the conditions of your life were such that Certain other things got more attention than this thing or whatever, you know. So you can look at whether you're beating yourself up for this loss or whether you're looking toward the present and the future. What have you learned? What can you do? You know, what's happening now? How are you making it worse by adding self-blaming onto it? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Lori? Well, the examples in our group, um, our relationship to gain. <clears throat> Get a little closer to your mic. It's hard to hear you. The relationships in our group, can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. On our relationships to um, gain, revealed that it's all a moving target. The same thing is with pleasure and pain because what you thought was a gain becomes normal. And then you need mm. more to feel gain. Or what you yeah. thought was a pleasure becomes normal and neutral and you need more. Yeah. And it occurs to me that this isn't just about worldly things, gains or pleasures. You know, you can achieve the first jhana. Now you want the second. Yeah. Um, it's, we're kind of wired this way. And um, we'll probably never be satisfied for long. Yeah, you know, in terms of practice, I mean, that's a great point in general. That's that point that we get used to it and then we want more. That science is finding a lot of that social psychological science. Um 
In terms of practice, it all depends, you know, I mean, you're not going to get the second jhana by wanting it, you know, so somehow parts of practice are, are going the other way. So they're more about, they are about letting go and relaxing. So in a way, you know, keep aiming for skillful attitudes in practice rather than getting something. And then I wouldn't worry about, you know, I don't know. It's an interesting balance of not, not, not giving up on the practice because and dismissing it as, oh, that's just wanting. But on the other hand, wanting really isn't the skill that leads you to deeper and deeper release, which the jhanas are about, say. So just, just putting that out there that it's possible to still aspire in a wholesome way. You know, that, that word chanda, that, that word that's the inspiration to practice is a good thing, is a wholesome thing. And it, it, but when it has starts to have that quality of I've got to get it, you know, because then I'll have some accomplishment, you know, then I'll not hate myself so much because I'm a cool Buddhist at least, something like that. <laughs> that gets to be not so wholesome. So, but letting go is letting go. Thank you. Thank you, though. I love that point about how we get acclimated to a certain degree of, of, uh, gain so uh anything else that anybody wants to chip in at this point so i saw him fly by somebody raise again ubalda chris yeah um what came up for me was uh, i had a hard time with the question because um it's hard to say uh, how okay let me forget that what i through the, through the question and through listening, I realized that um, through, in my experience, I've had a lot of loss in my life. And what I didn't realize, sometimes, or most of the times, I don't see the gains of those losses because when there is loss, there is also gain, at least in my experience. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, I lost some quite a bit. And then, but I also gained a lot. And because I got stuck on the loss, I couldn't see the gains. And it's just understanding that puts me in a place where I really so great. I'm so grateful because I'm realizing through the practice that all those experiences accumulated to something. And I cling onto that suffering, onto all that pain, onto all that loss. Yet I forgot or couldn't see what was in front of me. And it's just until now, you know, that I realized, my God, I never really was able to, to celebrate the gains or to be grateful because I was so blinded by the loss. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's my take on loss, mm-hmm. loss and gain, you know, mm-hmm. success and failure, however we want to see it. Yeah. So that's Thank all you. I wanted to share. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, let's take a break until um, let's take a break till eleven. That's about a seven-minute break. Okay, so come back at eleven, and then Jennifer will talk more about loss and working with loss.
Come back. Very nice. I, I imagine people going away for break saying, oh, I don't want to go back and talk about loss. <laughs> All right, I'm going to wait for one more minute. Okay, so let's see. Can everyone, first of all, can everyone hear me? Uh, thumbs up or, okay, great. So gain and loss, and as Chris said, I will be talking about loss or failure. So I plan to start out by showing you all a photo. And then in the talk, I'm going to have three Dharma themes. So I'm going to just tell you ahead of time. So maybe you can allow the brain to sort of, oh, which Dharma theme is this? Um, the Dharma themes that I'm going to be talking about are impermanence the truth of impermanence, the law of impermanence, and then right view and right action. Right view can also be seen as right perspective. Okay, so I'm going to share screen. Can you see this? So this is a sandcastle that a group of people at the beach were building this past weekend. And as you can see, it's really quite a project. Uh, they took all day. And I'm going to show you the picture of what they were trying to build this beautiful sandcastle, quite something. And they had all these strategies and techniques for it. It was, it was very fun and all sorts of people stopping by and asking them questions. And I was so excited because I had been thinking in my mind about the impermanence of sandcastles and how it is that as you're building this beautiful sandcastle, that you know within 24 hours, it's going to be gone. And there are some research, I mean, it's very rare that they're, the same castle is still there 48 hours later, but in any case, most of them go within a day. Um, but that's not the point. They were enjoying the process. They were enjoying the sandcastle for the beauty when it was there. And then it wasn't there. And they were telling us that sometimes at night, 
you know, little kids go over and, you know, tear down and so on. So in the same way, the Buddha talked over and over and over in the suttas about the arising and the passing of everything, of all things. And to really feel deeply into that. I like this term that Pema Chodron has. She says, understand whatever Dharma principle, but understand impermanence at the kitchen sink level, right? Like that's like get the hands dirty and really understand impermanence, not just here, but in the body. So, you know, gain and loss go together, right? They're inseparable. We just talked about that in, in the breakout groups. You, you can't have gain without loss. So, for example, with this whole pandemic, some people have felt a loss of a sense of community and a loss of connection. And others feel they're even more connected uh, to the their community and neighbors than they ever have been before. Um, some businesses have lost tremendous amounts of money, even gone out of business. Other businesses like Zoom, their stock is up and their business is better than ever. So gain is, and loss is everywhere. And it doesn't mean However, as we all know, it doesn't mean that loss is not painful. Doesn't mean that loss can be difficult, can be very ungrounding, right? We all have felt that. But we always have the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha to carry us through. And it was mentioned earlier, we always have that container of the Dharma so that we can respond to whatever loss comes our way with as much wisdom and compassion as we can. And I want to give you a real life example of this that happened recently because I found the response to this loss so beautiful. So some of you may or may not know that, um, Shambhala Mountains Center is a, a Buddhist meditation center in Colorado. And um, just like we have our Insight Retreat Center, our beautiful retreat center over there in <clears throat> Santa Cruz, Scotts Valley, they have a, a retreat center over in Colorado. And unfortunately, the fires have gone through part of their property. So here's the letter, an email from the executive director. <clears throat> and I'm going to read just excerpts of it. So the first you might hear the loss and the impermanence. The staff remain evacuated and continue to be housed either through Red Cross or with friends and family. Some staff lost their homes and possessions in the fire and SMC, it's the name of the community, will ensure they are taken care of and made whole. It is extraordinarily painful to lose one's home and to be in exile from the land. 
okay, you hear the acknowledgement of the pain. There's no aversion, <clears throat> there's acknowledgement and recognition. <laughs> Many of us are grieving while also turning toward the process of restoring and rebuilding. I love this sentence and it's what someone else was saying, you know, you can hear the gain and loss, the hope coming back, many of us grieving, and then there's also the, the restoring, the possibility. And here's, you may recognize some gain here. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for the outpouring of love and support. There's a palpable feeling of being held by so many people who have been offering help in pretty much every form imaginable. So when I read that sentence, I, you know, it's just, it's inspiring. There's loss and the gain of this love pouring in from everywhere. And then there's the, what did we learn from this loss and gain? We recognize that over the years, SMC has not been sufficiently integrated and involved with the local community. We fully intend to explore ways to change this. It has been deeply moving to have received messages from neighbors expressing how much SMC means to them. They're humbled and strengthened by all the caring. So there's loss and gain in this letter. And it was very inspiring to me to see how this was written it, with the grace of recognizing the pain of the loss the recognizing that they want to in the future become more a part of the community. That is a beautiful intention. And also referring to the rebuilding and restoring. So in my mind, that is a response that has both wisdom and compassion. And how we respond to loss you know, what does a wise and compassionate response look like really depends on the situation, on the individuals in the situation, right? So one of my favorite excerpts in the suttas, for some reason, is about the Buddha expressing the loss of his two chief disciples. And maybe this is the part of me that likes to connect with that human quality of emotion that, um, that is, in my mind, um, stated in this, this uh, excerpt. So the Buddha comes in front of his, an assembly, a group of, of the monks. It's referring to his monks here. And he's going to give a talk. And he looks out onto this, huge assembly of monks and Ananda, his assistant is with him. And so he addresses the assembly. He says, Bhikkhus, this assembly appears to me empty now that Sariputta and Magalana have attained final Nibbana. That means they passed away. This assembly was not empty for me earlier. And I, I love this. This assembly appears to me empty now 
that his two chief disciples are not there. And I read somewhere in the commentaries about this that um, the Buddha would have spent many years with these two monks, these two chief disciples. And he goes on um, praising these two monks. And, um, and of course, later on in the sutta, it talks about how, um, you know, he's, there's, there's no sorrow or lamentation, but there is the recognition of the absence of these two bhikkhus. So I love this. It's a, it's a way of um, acknowledging loss with grace of some kind. And so there's, there's some losses, however, that do require us to take action. And again, it all depends on the situation of what a wise and compassionate response to loss looks like. So losses such as loss of life through, for example, war, loss of life through hate crimes, through racism. Those kinds of losses, because they're losses for everyone. They're losses for the oppressed and they're losses for the oppressor. These kinds of losses require some action some right action as we have in the Eightfold Path. And I was very inspired by a speech that was given some years ago by Martin Luther King, where he spoke out against the loss of lives in the Vietnam War. And he talked about how these kinds of violence and loss of lives, how it's not just the loss of lives, and that's devastating enough, but it's a loss of every person's soul and spirit. And he called it a spiritual death for individuals and for a whole nation, whole country. And this really was powerful. You know, he's got this way of talking that just really exudes the truth of what he's saying. And so these losses, some losses require taking action. The whole Black Lives Movement has been so powerful recently because of the loss of lives. And, of course, we all know, anyone who's been around with the Buddhist teachings, the Buddha talked over and over and over again as well about the importance of non-harming. You know, I love that one sutta that um, this, this poor monk was just confused by all these different suttas and he went to the Buddha and he's like, you know, this is all too confusing. I can't get it straight. I don't understand. And the Buddha very kindly and compassionately said, just remember one thing, do no harm. And I love this. It's very, it can be very simple, do no harm. And there's a, a sutta, I didn't have time to look it up, but it's where the Buddha is encouraging people to not only do no harm themselves, 
but he also states, and it is important when it's appropriate, this is I'm paraphrasing, to do, to encourage others to do no harm. And that actually really got my attention. Um, so whether we lose our health or our home or our hope or our faith or loved ones or liberty, we lose our sense of peace, we lose connection with others, whatever the loss appears to be, to remember we always have the Dharma to steer us in the right direction. And there is this poem from the Buddha, I'm not going to read the whole poem, but it talks about how the Dharma steers us in the right direction. And that right direction is right view. It really all starts from right view, which is the very first of the Eightfold Path. And the name of this poem is Passing Through Bewilderment. And I love the name of the poem because when we experience a loss, Sometimes it can be bewildering in the sense of it's ungrounding. It's confusing. We get lost. We get lost when there's loss. I've seen this quite a bit as a chaplain in the hospital when someone loses a loved one, especially when it's quite unexpected. They just bewildered, lost, shocked. So that's the name of the poem, Passing Through Bewilderment. And he talks about, it says this line, the Dharma, I say, is the charioteer. The, the chariot being an ancient kind of vehicle. And the Dharma is the driver of the vehicle. And then the next line says, right view runs ahead. I just, I love this image. I just, I just, it makes me so... Um, because, you know, that container, again, there's right view out in front, making sure it's pointing to the right direction. Okay, we're going to go left and right. And you have the Dharma as the charioteer. Uh, it does say that mindfulness is the upholstery. And uh, I love this. Gil was talking about this poem. And, you know, the upholstery is there for ease, a sense of ease, you know, kind of holding us. In that, uh, as David was saying, you know, that kind of ease, naturalness, awareness, mindfulness that will also carry us through. And the last paragraph of this is, whoever has such a vehicle, whether a woman or man, has with this vehicle approached Nibbana or liberation or freedom, whichever word you connect with the most. So in this way, loss actually has the ability to wake us up. You know, there's this statement that says, 
You don't appreciate what you have until you lost it. And then you lose it. And, and there's this wake up, this clear seeing of, wow, what did I have? I wasn't, I was, I was asleep. Bless you. Sorry. <laughs> so if you remember nothing else from this talk, my hope for you is that you can remember the picture of the sandcastle. And as loss comes into your life, or in someone else's, a loved one's life, a friend's life, that this image, and almost like this embodiment, can you feel it in the body of the sandcastle, of knowing that everything that arises will pass away, and being aware that it is painful. There's no denying it. And then how to respond with wisdom, and compassion as best we can as best we can compassion might look like just breaking down and crying it all depends and that we have as i read and pointed out examples everywhere of people responding to loss with absolute inspiration and dignity and grace so that is what I would like you to take a moment to think about right now. Think of someone or a group of people, someone who has inspired you in their response to a loss of any kind. You may, this person may not even be around anymore. They may have passed away. Um, this person may not be someone that you personally know. You just read an article on them in the newspaper. So think of someone who has inspired you by their response to a loss of any kind. And here are the questions that you'll be talking about with your fellows and breakout groups about. What did they lose? It's a very brief description if it's possible. What did they lose? But mostly, why were you inspired by their response? And, um, you know, part of that, what, what kind of Dharma teaching? Did they have some kind of peace, ease, grace, equanimity? But just what were you inspired by from the response, keeping it very simple. And then can you imagine yourself someday in some way responding in a similar way? Okay, so what did they lose and what inspired you about their loss? or sorry, what inspired you about their response to the loss? All right. So what kind of discussion, what, what was 
inspiring to you? What came up for you in your groups? What highlights, what lowlights? And uh, also anything from, as Chris said before, uh, any comments from any part of the day? Any comments about your groups? How did they go? And you can either raise your hand electronically or just raise your hand and unmute yourself and talk. And we know this is right before lunch, but soon approaching, so we'd love to hear what went on. I would yeah. just like to say um, just how much I appreciate this this group and um, the other classes that IMC is offering now. Um, this is kind of my social life, so thank you all for for coming. It's just it's lovely to be in these groups and hear from other people and to get like a little awakening each time, like a little different perspective is just so helpful for me, especially in these like it's these quarantine times and these political times. It's very easy to get stuck in my little uh you know, neural brain waves where they want they're where they are used to going. And so it's lovely to get um, a little bit of influence um, from others and uh, awaken just a little bit more each time. So thank you all. Thank you, Megan. That's so true. So true. Wendy. Yeah, um, I was just really touched by the shares in our group, um, especially the last one in terms of, um, you know, what we seem to see or what as a witness to someone, it seems like a, a tragic or huge loss. And But I think it's almost like a gift for us when we're there to also witness their, the person's resilience um, and their path of finding um, the gain or the wisdom or witnessing their sense of perspective on things. It's, it's really um, an honoring, like, of, um, and, and I feel lucky to be recipient of seeing how things unfold for that person. And so, um, and by the same token, I think within our share, by, you know, sharing it maybe second and I'm hearing it third person, I also feel um, nourished um, by people's share. So, mm. yeah. Thank you. Mm. Mm. Yes. Thank you so much for bringing that out. And it sounds like a really rich discussion you had. And you're right. It's it just how much of a gain it is to, and, and an honor to witness how people respond to a loss and their resilience. So thank you. That's absolutely true.
Hi, Jennifer. Uh, this is Ram. Um, so uh, it's so insightful to listen in small groups. Uh, I completely echo what what Megan said. Uh, as much as we learn from teachings as well as reading, but having the individual experiences contributes so much to gaining insights. One of my most significant thing uh, I want to uh, share as a man particularly is always uh, uh, what's what I'm looking for appreciated what my wife provided for me and the family that at the appreciation goes in evolves into admiration what the Buddhist path teaches me is the inspiration from it the sacrifices that she makes what she lets go of, what she trades off on a day-to-day basis. And I'm learning to inspired with that mindset and the nature completely. In fact, in our group, I was sharing similarly to my situation about 24, 23 years ago. Uh, my, when my father passed away, my mom and dad were living in India at the time. And my immediate thought at that time was, who's going to take care of my mom? But it so happened, my mom really was so resilient how she turned it around and said, uh, you don't need to worry about me. I had, a, uh, my husband gave me a fantastic life for 43 years and she was channeling back to us about how we're going to carry on, how we are going to be <laughs> taking care of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that was so in, so inspiring if I look back. I mean, she's grieving on her own for sure. In that moment, she literally was more interested in making us resilient so that she's not dependent on us. She is plenty happy where she is, but her concern and her love and everything was channeled towards us, right? To date, I think about those those days, I even continue to look at day-to-day the sacrifices that my wife makes. And uh, this is just so much inspiring just in my own house. I don't need to go out and look for a lightning bolt or a, anything extraordinary. And uh, what the Buddhist teachings provide me is the opening up of those whatever thought processes to appreciate and get inspired by these things, not to take any of these things for granted, but look and get inspired by these things. And that's what I wanted to say. Thank you. Yes, yes, absolutely. That's how the the loss wakes us up. And, and just hearing some of the feedback from your groups, I have to say, I, it's inspiring for me to hear second, third, fourth hand. It's, I mean, I'm very touched by this. So thank you, Ram. Who else? Hi, I don't know if my, is my audio totally pixelated? I can hear you, Morgan. Yep, there you are. Okay, I'm going to turn off, I'm going to turn off my video just because sometimes it helps, but, um, uh, okay. I just wanted to share something that, like, as Rom kind of alluded to, something that's been a big learning, um, and with going through gain and loss, it, one of the other, one of the paramis that we talked in the last class with 
you wonderful teachers that I learned so much about, um, so much from, is um, patience, the pyramid of, of patience. And so patience, patient endurance, I have learned so much when I am experiencing loss and, um, and the ups and downs of gain and loss. Patient endurance carries me through so much of it um, to like the story of the, you know, the, um, the man who, who loses the horse and then gains. And also the other story about the monk who was accused of being the father of a, of a baby. And even though he was not and takes the baby in and he's like, he just, he endures with patience and to see what the next thing that unfolds will be. And to hold it that way has been so rich for me, so much in there that I just wanted to share that as part of the the learnings and the Dharma being the the chariot charioteer and um, it's just beautiful. So thank you for letting me share that. It was not well thought out, but it's just something that's really present for me in all this. Thank you, Morgan. Thank you. Absolutely. Yes. Patience is, is beautiful and patience with gain and loss is absolutely needed. <laughs> We're all experiencing this today. I think um, in our world today, patience, nothing comes, you know, quickly, at least not good things and enduring wise things. So with that, I will say that um, we're at the end of our class and you can look forward to our class next month, which by the way is Friday the, th the 13th, <laughs> Friday the 13th, which does happen to be after the election. So we'll have a very interesting discussion on praise and blame. That is the topic for next month and how we did not plan it that way, but there it is. <laughs> And um, we also will be sending out a handout early next week with um, homework and reflections and so forth on the gain and loss for you to practice with this month. So look forward to that. I am going to end with a brief dedication of merit. So in whatever way we have benefited from being together today, all the gains that we received from our class, from hearing each other shares in the breakout groups, larger groups, all of these benefits and gains, may we share these with others as we move through the rest of our day our weekend into next week so that all beings everywhere can benefit from our practice. May all beings be free. Hmm. You can unmute yourself and say goodbye. <laughs> Bye.
Bye, everybody. Bye. 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 Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. 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 B